It's interesting, uh, last month in 10,000 times 10,000 churches, the most quoted passage of scripture began with these words, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And uh, last month on the 17th, we had our incredible Christmas celebration, and uh, Ashton Jenkins stood over there behind a microphone, and he quoted that awesome passage in, in, in Luke 2. Do you remember? Do you remember? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. All right, question. There are no trivial questions about the Bible because there's nothing in the Bible that is trivial. But um, question number one. Who, who wrote, that, that was quoted out of the Gospel of Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke? What was his name? Well, Mike, obviously that was Luke. That was Luke. Luke wrote Luke. Um, not all Bibles have in their name the person that wrote them, but here's a harder question. Um, the Gospel of Luke was written by the physician Luke. He also wrote another book in the New Testament. That one doesn't bear his name. Uh, what's the name of that book? It's the book of Acts. He wrote the book of Acts. And for, for 2,000 years, we as believers have been opening the book of Acts to get God's insight on guidance on how he wants us to do church, how he wants us to be church. When you look at Acts, incredible things, instruction and inspiration and guidance and historical facts. Of course, everything the Bible says is factually true. Markers, all kinds of markers for the church and, and we look to God's word to get guidance on how we're supposed to live lives individually as followers of Christ, also collectively, corporately as the body of Christ. We look at the book of Acts to say, okay, God, what is job one? And Lord, what are some minefields that I need to avoid? And what are some doctrines and truths that are hills to die on? This morning in the book of Acts, we're going we're gonna to end up at Acts chapter 10, but on your way to Acts chapter 10, stop off at chapter 2 because we're moved by these words. They thunder. Every time you read them in Acts chapter 2, we're making our way to Acts 10, but we've got to stop off in Acts 2 where, where Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when they heard this, they came under deep conviction and they said to Peter and the rest of them, the rest of the apostles, excuse me, brothers, what must we do? Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. 3,000 people. You know this. People are our mission as a church. I mean, we, we say, uh, what's the mission of TLC? Well, it's to reach, raise, release undeniable followers of Jesus Christ. People are our mission. God has called us to people of all races, of all kinds, of all beliefs, 
churched, unchurched, never churched. We join God in his mission to, to reach people. And we always reach them one person at a time. It's always that way. It's one person at a time. And you just never know. You just never know what God is going to do when you live out your faith, when you share your faith. Bobby's a friend of mine. He's sitting in the back seat of a cab in New York City. He's, he's talking with a man that's sitting in the back seat with him. And Bobby, on this particular day, he's, he's sharing the gospel with the guy. And after they talk for a while, the guy looks at Bob and he says, no, I, I don't think I'm going to do that today. Years go by. I don't even remember what city Bobby's in. Bobby said, never forget. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm in this city. And he said, this guy walks up to me. I've, I've, I've never met the guy before. And he said, Bobby, you don't, you don't remember me. You wouldn't know me. But years ago, I listened as you shared the gospel with that guy in the back seat of that cab in, in New York City. And he said, as you spoke, I realized that Jesus that you were talking about is the one that I need in my life. And that day I gave my life to Christ and, and I got involved in the church and I've been growing ever since. And I serve and I'm now a leader in the church and I've, I'm, I'm in the process of being discipled. And Bobby, I just want to thank you because that day when you shared the gospel and that guy in the back seat said, no, I was the guy driving that cab and I said, yes. You never know. We never know what God is going to do through our lives in the lives of, of, of other people. We just never know. The, the gospel transforms lives in the villages of, of Thailand and in taxi cabs in New York City. This gospel that we preach and teach and live, it, it works in the streets of America and in the streets of St. Petersburg. And, and, it, and it works in the streets of Alamance County and, and on your street and in your family tree. It works, it works everywhere. Everywhere. We joined you at God in his mission to change our world one person at a time. We're getting ready to go to Acts 10. All kinds of places in Acts we could stop off at. But today, I am thrilled that we get to open this book to Acts chapter 10. But before we do... Would you pray with us? Lord, it is our collective prayer that we would hear your voice and your spirit speaking to us from the pages of this book. God, we thank you for your truth that is truth in every generation. We thank you that you are not through with us yet, that you've got plans and purposes in us and through us and to us to use us to make a difference in the lives of people one person at a time. God, we thank you that you've opened your arms and, and, and allowed us to be a part of this grand adventure that you have placed us on, this mission that you have put on our hearts because it's all about your heart. And Father, I pray that you would speak today. God, I pray you would keep me out of your way and that what we see and hear comes from your heart and your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you turn into Acts chapter 10... Um, it, is, it is so very important for you to understand um, who it is that you're reading about. Often, often when we read the, the Bible, we, we don't think about who exactly is, is it that we're talking about. Um, we just read that great passage in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, all those people together there, 3,000 people were saved. Uh, let me ask you this. In Acts chapter 2, was that the Jews or was that the Gentiles? It was the Jews from all over the then known world. They came together there in Acts chapter 2 and they were, were the Jews. Jesus Christ had, 
had, had left them a task to do. He, he sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was poured out. Um, Peter preached on that day. 3,000 people were born again by the Spirit of God. But the people that were there on Acts chapter 2, they were, they were the Jews. They were the chosen people. They were the people of God. Acts 2 begins with the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is a Jewish festival. It's important to know to know that. Those 3,000 people that were there, they were Jews. They were the people of Israel that had come together. But when you get to Acts chapter 10, it's not the Jews anymore. Acts chapter 10, you need to understand something monumental is taking place. The gospel is moving from the people of God, from the Jews, over to, to the Gentiles, to the people that were, grew up in, in pagan environments, and they were godless, and they were nasty. I mean, they were, the Gentiles were, they weren't, they weren't good people. And yet God is reaching out to these, to these people. It's important to know that when you get to Acts chapter 10, it's not the Jewish people. Most of us in this room, like 99.95% of us in this room, are you Jew or are you Gentile? Gentile, you didn't come, almost, almost all of us came from a Gentile heritage, from a Gentile background, very few. There are some folks that are part of our church family that did come from a Jewish background. They are Messianic Jews, and that is an incredible thing, but they are they're minutia as far as a percentage. And in, across America, most, in most churches, it's, it's, it's Gentiles. When you get to Acts chapter 10, it's, it's Gentiles. You start reading and, and you're introduced to Cornelius. Well, he's a Gentile. He's, he's not of the house of Israel. He's not like Peter, James, John, and Jesus. He's, he's a Gentile. And as far as the Jews were concerned, the Gentiles were dogs. Matter of fact, since most of us are Gentiles, if a Jew looked at us back then, they would say, you're a Gentile dog. Look at the person next to you and say, you're a dog. You're a Gentile dog. I mean, that's how they felt. That's kind of offensive to you, I know, but I'm just saying 2,000 years ago, if you'd have been a part of that early church movement, you would have had tons, tons of Jewish folks in the Jewish church, and they looked at you, the Gentiles, and they were going, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Matter of fact, you can just go to hell, and I don't care. You're not part of the people of God. There was that, there was that mindset that existed in the early days and God was trying to break, well, he did break that mindset. But for all of us, we were the Gentiles. And, and here is Cornelius, a Gentile. And Acts chapter 10 talks about him. And you understand the Jews hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles hated the Jews. And almost every one of those early church Christians struggled with embracing Gentiles. It was a struggle. And uh, the apostle Peter was one of those who struggled. Story picks up, Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Caesarea, that's important. Caesarea, center of the Roman governance in that reason, region. Caesarea. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Cornelius, a centurion, a, a Roman soldier that was in charge of a hundred other Roman soldiers. He was a Gentile. Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Notice what verse 2 says about him. He was a devout man. He feared God with all his household. 
He gave alms generously to the people. He prayed continually to God. He was a devout man. He was a very religious man. You understand, though, that there was a huge difference between a man who is religious toward God and a man who has a relationship with God. We still have that problem today in churches across this land. People substitute religion for relationship, traditions for truth. Cornelius was a great guy, but he didn't know Christ, and he was lost, and he's a Gentile. And, and it says in, verse, says in verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius! Verse 4, and he stared at him in terror. And he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have, have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon a Tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who was attending, who attended him, and, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So you got the picture. So here are these guys on the way to Joppa from Cornelius' house. They're going to find Peter, Simon Peter, the, the disciple of the Lord. God sends instructions to Cornelius, go get Peter. Cornelius, a Gentile, go get Peter, a Jew. The story continues. You find Peter on the rooftop. Verses 9 through 16. The, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, verse 9, went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, six, so noon, to pray. And verse 10, you know, he's praying, but about noontime, you know what happens? It's time to eat. It's verse 10. He became hungry. He wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14, Peter goes, say what? Those were... Those were nasty, unclean animals. I mean, it was like fried shrimp and pulled pork and smoked pork loin and fried catfish and the, the, the stuff that will be on the marriage supper of the lamb. But in that day, you couldn't eat it. And, and Peter, his whole life, he hadn't touched that kind of food. And he wasn't about to touch it now. And the Lord said, Peter, that stuff in that sheet, I, I, want, you to get, I want you to eat that. No, no, I know the fixing stuff downstairs, but I want you to eat what's in the sheet. And Peter goes, well, look at verse 14. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, because I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And a voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. For clarification, you know that this was not about the animals in that sheet, right? Um, Peter was going, I don't want to look at them. I don't want to touch them. There's no way I'm going to eat them. But the point wasn't the animals. The point was God was saying, Peter, 
Don't you dare call unclean what I'm calling cleaned and what I've cleaned. And, and, and God, God's wanting Peter to open his eyes. And what he's wanting Peter to do is see people that he has not been willing to look at or to talk to or to touch. And he has kept these Gentile dogs at distance. He didn't want to have anything to do to them with them. Peter had not been willing, not just to like, love them, he didn't even like them. God wants him to open his eyes and open his arms to these people that he had not even wanted to consider. It's, it's hard for us in 2024 to get, our, to get our minds. This is a seismic directive from God to Peter. Peter, I'm sending you to a Gentile's house. The guy's name is Cornelius. He's a Roman soldier, and I want you to tell him about what Christ has done for him. And Peter's going, you want me to do what? Guys, if, if you're a Jew, th this is seismic. If it were a mountain, it'd be Everest. If it were a hurricane, it would be a Cat 5. Th this is seismic. What's Peter do? He gets up and goes. Because when you follow Jesus, it means you follow Jesus. So he gets up, he goes, and, and it says in verse 28 that... Um, <laughs> Peter gets to the Cornelius's house, and the first thing he says to Cornelius um, is not a model for effective evangelism. He walks in Cornelius's house, this Gentile. Cornelius has all these other Gentiles gathered, and what comes out of Peter's mouth is, you know it's forbidden for me to be in the house of a Gentile dog, don't you? I mean, I mean, that's like saying, you have got the ugliest baby I've ever seen. You... <laughs> I mean, there's certain things you don't, you don't do, you don't say. Man, that's the worst meal I've ever eaten. Man, you sure married an ugly woman. I mean, you, there, there, are certain things, there are certain things that you never, ever say. That's, that's what came out of Peter's mouth. But God's trying to teach him. He's trying to teach him. And down in verse 28, to those gathered, Peter says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Seismic, guys. So Cornelius tells Peter what, what the angel said to him four days earlier when, when the angel said, you need to go get Peter and you just need to listen to what he's got to say. So here's Peter standing in Cornelius' house with all these other Gentiles in his house. And the Bible says that Peter, verse 34 and following, so Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Don't miss what, what God's saying. Peter, I want you to open your eyes and I want you to see people that you have been overlooking and you have not been willing to even consider. Peter, I, I want you to open your heart and I want you to care for these people that, that I care about. I want you to love the people that I love because it matters to God. That what, who matters to him matters to us. Peter, I, I want your willingness to pour your life into other people. And this guy who was not even willing to look at a Gentile, he came to love the Gentile. 
And it's the story in Acts. And you know what happened. Not only did Cornelius get saved, but his whole, his whole household got saved. In Acts 2, it's the Jewish people getting saved. In Acts 10, it's the Gentile people being saved. But hear this. They're being more than saved. That's important. I know that's kind of a strange sound. They're being more than saved. You see the church birthed among the Gentiles, but, but don't miss this. All the Gentiles, they were nasty, they were pagan, they were dirty, they were godless. Almost every Gentile came out of a pagan, godless background, and, and, and they were immoral, and they lived horrible lifestyles, and you wouldn't want them living on your street, and you wouldn't invite them over for a cookout. And you certainly wouldn't want them dating your son or your daughter. And you wouldn't want them hanging out at your house. That's just how people felt about them. And here are these Gentiles who now are born again by the Spirit of God. The brand new Christians. And here's the question. I mean, it's a huge question. How did these new Gentile Christians, who were once godless pagan people, how did they know how to live? How did they know how to build great churches and communities that were Christian and, and were doctrinally sound? How did they become such giants in the faith that they turned the world right side up? Who in the world taught them to know how to do that? You'll understand this hadn't been written yet. The New Testament had not been written yet. And they're Gentiles. They didn't know the Old Testament. How in the world did they become such giants in the faith that they turned the world right side up and they knew what good doctrine was and they knew how to treat people and they knew how to grow great churches and they knew how to build churches and communities? How did they, how did they do that? Matter of fact, on your handout, that question is right there. Kind of top left-hand part of the page and there's a big long line underneath it. Would you write in that line this? The Acts 2 church discipled the Acts 10 church. That's what goes in the line. The Acts 2 church. Now, the Acts 2 church was the Jews. The Acts 2 church discipled the Acts 10 church. The Acts 10 church was, was the Gentiles. The Acts 2 believers discipled the Acts 10 believers. I mean, how did these pagan Gentiles, who had a history of all kinds of personal and cultural godlessness, how did they know to grow in their faith? Well, they were discipled in the faith. Well, who discipled them? The Jews discipled them. The early church knew better than just win them to Christ and let them figure it out on their own. I know we in our day, they've never heard of that, but they knew better than to do that. They knew what the scriptures said, even though the scriptures had not been written, it'd been orally transmitted. They knew what Jesus said. He said, listen, you you go and make disciples of all the nations. You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You teach them, you teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Usually in Christian circles, we focus on the going, we focus on the evangelism, we let the rest of it go. Jesus never let the rest of it go. You go, you reach them, but then you, you, you baptize them and you teach them, verse 20, you teach them to observe Matthew 28, 20, you teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. That is, you, you disciple them. 
You disciple them. And I look at Acts chapter 10, and I'm fascinated by it because I realize what kind of background these guys came out of. The huge necessity in making disciples is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Discipleship has as its, has, as its root disciple. Disciple. These disciples, these, these witnesses, they gave of themselves. They poured into people. And it wasn't people that were like them. It wasn't people from their family tree. It wasn't people from their lineage. It wasn't people that would have lived on their street. It wasn't people that they would have ever even considered. And now they're not just liking them, they're loving them. They're they're not avoiding them. They're pouring their lives into them. Sounds like hard work to me. You think? Right before Jesus went back to heaven, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll remember he said... um, but, but you stay here and, and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my, you will be my, you remember that word he used? You'll be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other most possible. You will be my witnesses. He said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. Um, you know this, the New Testament, the Old Testament was not written in English. Um, Old Testament written in Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek. Do you you know what the New Testament word for witness is? Um, See if you can figure it out. Here's the Greek word. We translate it witnesses, but but the Greek word for witness is this. See if it sounds like an English word that you know. Martyros. Martyros. The word for witness is martyros. What does that sound like to you? Martyr. The word martyr is the word witness. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, if I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, it, 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 it means that I am a martyr for him. Does that surprise you? This thing called Christianity, there's parts of it that, that are not easy. There's parts of the discipleship that God calls us to this, this not flippant, it's, it, it, it takes a lot out of you. It requires a lot of you. The kingdom of God requires a lot of us. Jesus did not die on the cross and was risen again from the dead in order to just save us so that we could come to church. I don't think God on Sunday morning goes, Hey, Jesus, Spirit, come here. Look at how many of my people are in church today. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, it is wonderful that you're in church today. That, I'm not knocking you being in church. I'm just saying the gospel of Jesus Christ is about more than just us attending church. Would you agree with that? And, and to be a witness, to be a disciple, it costs us. And it costs us a lot. And God's trying to help Peter understand, man, this discipleship that you're in, this witness that you are, dude, it's going to cost you. And, and, and I want you to go over there. I want you to go to his house and I want you to talk to him about me. Peter protested there for a little bit, and then he went. All right, we're going to go back to class real quick. Um, In the New Testament, you see these two words, the word disciple, the word Christian. Matter of fact, on your handout, kind of in the middle there to the right, you've got this little box. You'll see the two words, disciple, Christian. To the right of those words, you'll see some numbers. The assignment is this, and you're going to have seven seconds to do it. The assignment is this. Um, how many times do you think in the New Testament um, it uses the word Christian? And how many times in the New Testament does it use the word disciple? 
So you just draw a line from Christian to whatever number you think the Bible uses that in the New Testament and draw a line to whatever number you think disciple is in the New Testament. You've got seven seconds and the answer is not going to appear on your screen. You got seven seconds, go. Do you need more time? Do you need more time? That was three, two, one. Okay, how many times do you think the word Christian is found in the New Testament? Three times, some of you know. Three times, three times. So if you draw a line to the wrong number, you can kind of squiggle that out. I don't think squiggle's a word. And draw to the number three and circle the number three. Christian is found three times in the New Testament. How many times in the New Testament do you think the word disciple is found? 269 times. So the word Christian is three. The word disciple is 269 times. Do you think God is emphasizing something to his people? It's it's huge here in Acts chapter 10. At the heart of our marching orders, at the heart of our marching orders, and you'll, you'll see that underneath that box, at the heart of our marching orders as a people of God is to make disciples, not just converts slash Christians, but disciples at the heart of our marching orders our orders are not just to make converts it's not just to get people to miss hell and hit heaven but to make a disciple a committed follower that we have poured and we continue to pour our lives into collectively as a body and individually as followers of Jesus Christ and what we're tragically witnessing in churches today across the land is is churches are filled with well what a friend of mine Jess Moody he used to call it this he said churches are filled with undiscipled disciples. Christians who have never been discipled one-on-one individually, and therefore they don't disciple anyone themselves. And to make matters worse, there's this mindset in churches in the Western world, there's this mindset that discipleship is optional. It's a belief. I mean, it's, it's, it's culturalized in our DNA of thinking in churches. And there are these these two cancerous, malignant myths that exist in churches across the land. Um, it's at the bottom left hand of your paper. It says, here's malignant myth number one. It's okay to be Christians forever and never become disciples. That's a myth. It's okay to be a Christian but never become a disciple. And, and liken to it is number two, it's permissible to be a Christian but not really worry about discipling others in the faith. As long as, as long as I'm a Christian, I don't have to really disciple others in the faith. We talk a lot in church about the Great Commission. Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, Jesus said, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We talk a lot about the Great Commission. The great omission in the Great Commission is that I can be a Christian without being a disciple. That's the great omission. That is the black eye in the American church. It's something that makes you uncomfortable. Imagine asking Jesus the question, Jesus, is it permissible for me to be a Christian but not be a disciple? And he would look at you. Um, just imagine asking him that question. What do you think his response would be? Well, we know what his response is because he said it in his word and There's nothing in Scripture, there's nothing in what Jesus ever taught us, there's nothing in what the New Testament says or what the early followers of Christ taught that even hints that we can enjoy Christ's forgiveness and have nothing more to do with Him. Or that it's okay to win someone to faith in Christ 
and just let them go on their own. Just do the best you can. Hope you make it. We're here for you if you need us. Call us if you need us. Church is open. Blah, blah, blah. There's this, this heresy that has crept into evangelical Christian circles that, that we can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior. But we, it's okay if we postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. Some people have called that being a vampire Christian. You know what a, you know what a vampire Christian is? A, a vampire Christian, it's like the person that says, this is terrible. <laughs> I, I hate to even say it, but, but it's a vampire Christian. A vampire Christian is a person who says, Jesus, I'd, I'd like a little of your blood, please. Enough of your blood to save me, but I, I don't really care to be your student or have your character in fact, please excuse me while I live life my way and I'll see you in heaven one day. Just thinking about that gives me a stroke. <laughs> if the early church had the mindset of a lot of churches today, the church would have never made it out of the first century. The great issue facing the church today is whether we who name the name of Christ, who are identified as Christians, will become disciples who make disciples. And in the New Testament, it's not optional. And somehow or another, we've thought it is optional. Jesus never saw his true followers as anything but disciples, and that's why he said, you go and you make disciples. It's, it's not a thing, am I a Christian or am I a disciple? It's, I am a Christian who is a disciple. By the way, disciple, that's used in the New Testament how many times? 269 times, and the word Christian is used how many times? Three. God, God's trying to tell us something. You know, maybe illustrate it this way. When we, when we do evangelism, when we do the work of the gospel, we do the work of evangelism, and the gospel is more than just about evangelism. I get that. But when we do the work of evangelism, evangelism produces converts. That's a good thing. That's a biblical thing. But you don't stop there. You never stop there. Discipleship produces disciples. So we never go, well, our job is just to reach people for Christ so that they become followers of Jesus, so that they become converts. It's never go and make converts. It's, it's go and make disciples. We want to disciple people because we want to produce, we want to produce disciples. And there's this terrible thing that happens when we don't do discipleship. If you, if you talk to church leaders all across the country, the number one issue that they'll talk about, the number one issue that they'll talk about, the thing that keeps them up at night, the thing that is above every other thing, that is, is this, ne this neglected, glaring weakness that we have in, in the church in the West where we've got Christians who are not disciples. Or... The flip side of that is we want to be we want to be disciples who are making disciples. I'm sitting in a meeting outside of uh, Atlanta down at Peachtree City, Georgia, and 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 Bruce Bruce Frank is sitting at the table that I'm sitting at. Bruce Frank at that time was at the Met uh, in Houston, Texas, Metropolitan Church in Houston, Texas. Uh, after that, he went to Asheville to to Biltmore Baptist. Um, but at the time when he was at the Met. He was the discipleship pastor. And I'll never forget what Bruce said. I'm sitting at the table beside of him, and he's talking to a whole bunch of us that are in the room. And uh, he made this statement. He said, 
He said, you know, last year we had 500 people that joined our church. I about slid out of my chair. I didn't even have 500 people in my church. And he said, he said, we had 500 people that joined the church. And he said, at the end of the year, at the end of the year, do you know how many people we actually netted? Now, 500 people came in the front door of the church and they joined the church. And at the end of the year, when they added up how many people were still in the building, he said, do you know how many people we netted? 500 people joined. How many people do you think they netted that they gained after 500 people joined? What do you think the number is? Look at the person beside you and give them some kind of number. It could be any number at all. So what do you think that number is? All right, hold up, hold up your hands, your toes, your fingers. What do you think the number is? How much did they grow by? Would you hold up those fingers? Hold them up high? Yes, please. Do you see her two fingers? Okay, um, lower one finger. And that's how many people they netted. 500 people joined. Thank you. You were so close. You were so close. So, so 500 people joined the church. 500 people came through the front door. 499 went out the back door. The church grew by one. Bruce, Bruce's point was, we haven't been discipling. We've been doing great programming. We've been doing great preaching. We got all kinds of great programs. We got all kinds of great ministries. The church is large. We've got... We've, but we're not discipling people, and it don't work. I, I can't forget that conversation. I, I'm looking at the Acts church, and I'm seeing one of the markers of the New Testament churches. These believers, they were just compelled in, in this never-ending quest to, to, to reach people, but to also raise them up and disciple them so that they could be released to replicate their lives in the lives of other persons. I, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine that sometime in 2024, you yourself are sitting alongside of another person. You're sitting beside of someone. You got a Bible in your lap. You're sitting around a table. You're sitting in the coffee shop, wherever. You might be fishing and you're on the bank of a pond and then you stop the fishing and you, wherever. You, you are sitting beside of another person and you guys are talking about things of the faith. You're you're talking about family. You're talking about this word. You're helping to disciple somebody. You're helping them to grow to an, another level, another step. You're taking them. The miraculous transformation that took place in the Gentile believers took place because they were discipled. And the New Testament church spread like wildfire because they were discipled. And you are here today because those people discipled those people. If they had not done that, the New Testament church would have never made it out of the first, never made it out of the first century. Around here, we talk about, you know, lying circles and closets. Um, that in a, in a biblically balanced New Testament church, you've got lying circles and closets. And of course, the lines represent what? What we're doing in here, the lines, we're, we're all in lines and we come together as, as corporate family, as part of the church and we're, we're growing together and we worship and we sing, we pray, we cry, we laugh, we, we open the word of God. We do that collectively, corporately as a body, it's the lines, it's New Testament, it's right, it's good, it's fun, it's great. We need the lines. But there's also in the New Testament, there's the circles. What do the circles represent? 
the small groups. We cannot thank you, those of you who lead small groups. You teach Sunday school classes. You do support groups. You, you do recreation groups. You work with preschoolers and children and middle schoolers and high schoolers and young adults. We cannot say thank you enough for all that you do. The, the circles are huge. They're, they're, just, they're just huge. Um, there's also the closets. Matter of fact, you've got this, this, this brilliant drawing on your handout. It kind of looks like a little horror face, but it's a little smiley face. I want you to pull that out. Look at that. Um, that smile, that's, that's the line. Would you just draw an arrow to that and say, okay, this is, this is us as a family when we worship. These are the, this is when we corporately come together and we worship it. And the eyeballs, those are the circles. Just draw a line to that. That's the small group. And you've got the nose. You'll see that little triangle. Well, in the triangle, there's stained glass. But under that triangle, would you just draw what looks like a closet door? Because that's the closet. That's the place where I go to meet with God. And, and, and he and I talk. Nobody else is in the room. It's just me, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. That's it. And, and, and the closet is huge to, to the Christian faith. But there's this other thing that we never talked about that I want to mention to you today. It looks like freckles. But it's not freckles. What do you think those little dots are on the face? Because the way I put it in my notes, I said, here's, here's the never-ending danger in, in churches today. Allowing the large group or the small groups to take the place of one-on-one -on -one discipleship. The one-on-one -on -one discipleship, that's those little dots. It's not huge Groups of people getting together. It's me and another person. It's you and another person. It's that person that you're envisioning. Maybe I could come alongside that individual. It might be a family member. It might be somebody on my street. It might be a, a new believer, someone who comes to faith in Christ. And, and, and somebody here from the church gives you a call and says, Hey, listen, Sam, last week Billy accepted Christ as his Savior. Um, we want you to walk alongside of him for, for a few weeks or a few months. Those freckles, they're small, but there's nothing small about them. They're as important as the large group. They're as important as the small group. The church doesn't really go forward very well without, they're not freckles. It's just what I call them because I got a lot of freckles. But, but they're, just, they're just little dots. They're, it's one-on-one. -on -one. It's a man and a man. It's a woman and a woman. It, it's, it's a discipleship relationship. That's what, they're, that's what they're in. And that's what they were doing in Acts. It was discipleship. It wasn't just coming together and hearing preaching um, and praying. Listen, if great preaching would have won the world and discipled the world to Christ, we'd have been one a thousand years ago. If great praying would have been all that we needed to do, we'd, even, we'd be in heaven by now. This act of one-on-one -on -one biblical discipleship, that is the thing that is critical in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, on the bottom left hand of your sheet, you've got this little, this little block. W would you write this word in there? D2. D2. Take a guess what D stands for. Discipleship. Now, why in the world would we put a two right beside of the D? Why didn't we put three or four or six or eight? Why do we call it D8? D10, D12, D20. Not D3. Why D2? What's the importance of the two? What's the importance of the two? It's just two people. It's two people. And it is 
seismic in its importance in the scripture and in its importance to God. I think God gets more excited when he sees his people one-on-one discipling each other than almost anything else we could possibly do because he sees that man is discipling that man. That lady's discipling that. That student is discipling that student. That parent is discipling that child. And we're going to come together corporately and we're going to celebrate all that. Just imagine that person this year that you could come alongside of and you, you could disciple. There, there's, no, there's no substitute for it. There's just no substitute for it. Effective immediately. We are beginning. I say it's a new initiative. It's 2,000 years old. We're, we're, we've got a new initiative starting next month. We're calling it D2. D2. Matter of fact, we're going to train as many of you as are willing to be trained. We're going to help, help you to know how you could come alongside of another person and you could disciple another person. And we're going to continue to do that because we're going to disciple people, not just in small groups, not just in large groups. We're going to disciple them one-on-one. There's no, there's no substitute for it. We are going to prioritize biblical discipleship in groups two. Technically, a small group is three people or more. So this is not as large in size as a small group, but it's as lar- it is as large in importance. And we're just calling it D2. Look at the person beside you and say, D2. This really happened. Now, I'm thinking about it was, it was a service. It was at the end of the service. The, the preacher on the platform, he was given the invitation. And the invitation was not an invitation for salvation. It was an invitation for those who are believers, who are part of the family of God, to get up and make a commitment, to take a step forward, to be a part of evangelism and discipleship. And at the invitation, it was over here on this side of the room, there was a, there was a guy. He was an 80-year-old man. He, he, he had his walker. His hands were shaking. He was bent over his walker. And he was making his way down to the front. Invitation. People were moving. And he was coming down front like this. And, and, and the preacher on the platform, I know the guy, the preacher on the platform. And he says, when I saw him, he said, I jumped off the platform. I went over to him. I put my arm around him. And, and, and I said as gently and nicely as I knew how, but he, he said it floored me that here's this 80-year-old man that can't even hardly walk, and he's coming forward. And he put his arm around the man, and he, he, said, he said, man, I'm going to paraphrase it, but he basically said, you are old and decrepit. What in the world do you think you could do? And, um, and he said, I'll never forget what that man said. Turned his head up like this and he looked at him and and the 80-year-old man said, he said, I don't know what I can do, but I know what I cannot do any longer. I will not sit out there while men and women are dying and going to hell and do nothing. I am coming forward to put my stake in the ground to say I'm going to be a part of reaching and discipling people in this generation. And whatever God can do through me in the time that I've got left... Here I am. Uh, If if, if you're breathing, if you're breathing, God's going, I want you 
disciple. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. Matter of fact, you know this is coming. In the card rack in front of you, in the seat in front of you, there's these connection cards. There's not a place on this card that says D2. That don't matter. For today, it doesn't matter. If you would be willing to say, Mike, I'm willing to consider, or Mike, I'm committed to doing it. Some of you have already said to me, I want to be a part of doing that. I want to be a part of coming alongside of somebody. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to, sem- you don't have, to have a seminary degree. You got the Spirit of God living in you. We will, we will train. We will equip you so that you can effectively come alongside of someone and help disciple them in the faith. Imagine what that looks like multiplied a generation down the road. Imagine what that would look like two months from now, five months from now, six months from now. So, so I'm asking you today, if you would be willing to consider being a part of coming alongside of somebody, we'll train you to do it. It's not complicated. We'll train you to do it. Then, then just put your name, you can put your email, your phone number, and, and, and you can just write a little note on that card to say, I'm in, or, or I think I'm in, or I want to talk to you about this, or I'm scared to death, but I'm willing to... And if, if you are a new believer, if you've come to Christ recently, but no one has come alongside of you, put your name down here and say, listen, I'd like somebody to disciple me. You say, Mike, does this not scare you? Well, part of it terrifies me. It does. Because most churches don't do it. The overwhelming churches don't do it. We're not going to be one of those churches. We're not. We're not. We are not knocking any other church. It is not that. I know for a fact that 90% of the churches out here across America are either plateaued or declined. There's, there's less than 10% of churches across this land that are growing. And out of the churches that are growing, most of them grow by biological growth or transfer growth. Less than 1% grow by conversion growth. And that doesn't even mean that we've discipled them. It just means they got saved. So I know the numbers. I know what it means. And I'm going, that is not where we're going as a church. That is not the heart of our pastor. That's not the heart of this staff. That is not your heart because I hear you saying, I want to be a part of that. Hell's going to fight us. Sure it is, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Some disciples are going to disappoint us. Well, Jesus didn't bat a thousand either. Look at his 12. One of them went out and hanged himself after he... Well, it gets messy. Yeah, people are messy. What are you going to do about it? We're going to go make disciples. That's what we're going to do about it. If you'd be willing to be a part of that, just put your name down. We will follow up. I promise you, we will follow up. And we'll begin a journey together of training disciples who are making disciples. What if I mess up? You don't mess up. Only way we mess up is to not do what he's called us to do. Father, in this place today, I thank you for these men and women and these students. I thank you, God, for an opportunity to just hear your heart through acts on what you're calling us as a church to be in the days ahead until you come to take us home. God, till the trumpet of the Lord sounds, might we be about the work of making disciples. In Jesus' name we pray.